0: So Phyllis Tickle wrote this book called The Great Emergence, and it goes through these 500-year cycles, and she identifies um, all of the sociological things that were going on, all the economic things that were going on at the time, and then she begins to uh, show what the core of belief was, and it goes to what, who is your authority. And she says that if you want to, you can even work this backwards in in the life of Israel, that you can go um, to David's reign and then back that up to um, the judges, and you can back that up to the law of Moses, and so forth, uh, and back that up 500 years to Abram. So it, it's... Uh, it's not exactly a nice, <clears throat> neat 500 years at the t- you know at times, but it is approximately every 500 years, and so she starts <clears throat> with New Testament Christianity in the first century, and then she propels it forward to 500 years, to when um, the the period of time what we would call in architecture the Romanesque period. And so we go from ancient apostolic authority all the way to the Romanesque times when everyone was so incredibly concerned about keeping themselves from going to hell. And this was during the, the, the latter part of those 500 years um, was when Rome was completely overrun by hordes. Uh, And so the institutions of learning, the ability to read, all all that was snuffed out. And it was the institution of monasteries where they were able to preserve texts and codices so that the light of learning was completely embedded in that of the church. So, from that point forward, the church was the authority. Um, and so, that takes us up to um, the time, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm trying to remember here. Okay, that pulls us up to about the time of um, the Crusades. And the Crusades. Were uh, instituted by the by the um, monarchs and and one of the popes to go over to the Holy Land and recover the Holy Land from the Turks, well, from the, from the Muslims, um, and because Turkey hadn't been established yet, that's why I had to re- go back and and catch myself. So. Um, during that time the emphasis was on how do I keep myself from going to hell so that was Romanesque architecture then it pulls us into uh, the gothic period where mystery and awe was everything and so we had these grand edifices so that when you walk in your eyes automatically ascend and you have a sense of being of the ethereal that that worship of a living God is about the living God it's not about yourself. there were some in um, some things about that time that were overwhelmingly bad, for example, the selling of indulgences um, to keep yourself out of purgatory, um, the fact that they used people to, um, to build these structures, uh, even though they were paid, the, the overwhelming reason why you would work on the, on the edifice was so that you could work off your time in purgatory. So there were a lot of abuses that were happening among the clergy. So, um, things come to a head in the 1300s. We have the Great Schism has already happened. Um, the, uh, The Pope sits in Rome, sometimes in Ravenna, Italy, and then the Great Schism lands a patriarch in Constantinople, so we have two people claiming to be the head of the church. And so this, this apostolic succession is getting to be uh, broken. Well, it gets even worse when the tensions between France and Italy become such that a self-proclaimed uh, pope is seated in France, Okay. So now you've got three men claiming to be the head of the church. And of course, we've already talked about how that uh, we didn't even have such conversations when we were l- looking at the kingdom of God as, as taught by and as ex- exemplified by Christ. But that it was after Constantine that the kingdom of the world was superimposed onto the church and you had this hierarchical. Structure, so um, after um, after a while, people begin to think, okay, if the church is the authority and we've got three different competing voices, uh, something's not right in Denmark, and so um, especially when Martin Luther nails the ninety-five thesis to the The doors in uh, Germany. Um, There is this questioning about who is the authority? And his answer and the answer of many others uh, in Europe at the time are sola scriptura, scriptura only. Yes, so only scripture. Scripture only and that became the authority. Well, when you do that, you have to have... uh, admit that the priesthood is open to all believers, and that it's not a hierarchical. It's a combination of being able to read the Scriptures, interpret the Scriptures, and... um, and so the Protestant religion just burns like fire through Europe. This is an idea whose time has come. But that means that if it's really gonna work, then people have to be able to read the scripture. Well, it just so happens that in 1483, Islam um, overwhelms Constantinople and forges itself all the way up to the Danube in um, what, what we consider Um, Austria now. And with them, because they were not uh, in the Roman Empire at the time, their centers of learning and science, mathematics, has been like uh, a shining beacon. And they actually have the Greek texts and they have the Latin texts and they know how to read them. So uh, because the text is in in Greek originally or translated into the Latin Vulgate. Um, the church um, is the only one that knows how to interpret that. So basically, um, Greek is taught outside believers are able to read the texts, and uh, not outside believers, but people who, the lay people. <clears throat> and so it creates this environment for the priesthood of all believers, because then they could t- read it. And there were so many church wars during this time, um, people actually lost their lives because of the Protestant movement. And in addition to that, <clears throat> the, um, many, many people began to lose their lives for wanting to translate it into the common language. So you see all kinds of uh, wars going on between uh, especially Spain, because Spain was like holding on to the Roman Catholic religion there were <clears throat> there were no protestant there's no room for Protestant thought in Spain, and so <clears throat> um, therefore, the Inquisition, because they wanted to keep it pure and so. Basically, you have uh, Protestant thought in England, thanks to Henry the uh, You have—I <clears throat> don't know what is wrong with my voice today. I apologize. Um, you have Christian thought going on in Europe that um, that allows for the discourse and understanding, but people that want to translate it are hunted down and killed for for wanting to translate it into the English language. Eventually, uh, it was translated into the English language and Gutenberg simultaneously invented the printing press. And so, whereas at the beginning It was really very rare and very expensive to own a copy of scripture that was hand uh, created now with the gutenberg press it is available to all Um, so um, that is a little bit of a background and i'm kind of racing above myself but another thing that was happening simultaneously in the social world, was that fiefdom was going its separate way too. Uh, No longer did you have the manor and everyone working for the manor. Uh, Now, businessmen and uh, were pulling together to create uh, their own uh, trades. Yeah, what's the word I'm looking at? Guilds, thank you, and so they were they were actually using their money to, to create chapels uh, in the edifices themselves. But because of their monetary strength, a middle class is emerging for the first time. And fiefdom goes the way of the dodo bird. <laughs> and so uh, commerce becomes very, um, I, dare I say, capitalistic. Um, and you're you're not uh, identified or indentured to another human being. So you can work for your family. And because of this, uh, socially, the community is not as important now as is the nuclear family. So you're working for your family, not for the community. And because of this, uh, it is paving the way for individualism, and it's all because of what's happening socially, monetarily, uh, spiritually. It's all it's all a piece of society. Okay, and now you're allowed choice. So, some of the things that we begin to see. do this one okay There is a pendulum that's very interesting in human history. I'm going to take this off and see if we can get a signal straight. Is that we, we go we we send tend to travel from head to heart, and heart to head, and then back again. It's a pendulum. It goes back and forth. Head, heart, head, heart, head, heart we go from gothic structures where it's all about the heart it's all about mystery and you can see how very diminutive human beings are in relationship to the structure so that when you walk in you're thinking of god and and structures such as the one in cologne germany and then you go to the Renaissance. And this, the Renaissance is running alongside all these changes that we've talked about. And what's the first thing that you notice that's different from Gothic to, um, to Renaissance? It's a bit
1: more intimate.
0: It's more intimate? very bright. Very bright, okay, good. What else? Think shapes. The ceiling is flat instead of arched. There you go, okay. Very, yes. Um, And what have they adopted in the way of arches this time? Because this interaction with Islam has come back, they have rediscovered some of the original, they feel like they've rediscovered scripture, sola scriptura, scriptura sola. They've also rediscovered ancient uh, forms from Rome, and so they readopt them. Um, do you remember how flat images were in Byzantine? Well, now they rediscover all of the- these Roman artifacts and they begin to re-adopt them. So you have the arches uh, that are Roman. You have the vaults that are Roman. You have the capitals. Um, the interior capitals are the Corinthian columns. Uh, on the exterior, you're gonna see Ionic or Doric. Primarily Ionic, because they're more decorative than the the Greek um, Doric. <clears throat> And because it is flat, the attention is to the the men on the podium. It, so it's like uh, we want a declaration of the word. Scripture only, only scripture. I don't see stained glass. Exactly. That's gone away. Right. Right. Um, even the old structures, so when you go to Florence, Italy, and one of the oldest structures in the city is the baptistry. Have, do you, l- let me take a, take a picture of it for you. I'm going to skip over to this one so you can see the whole script. the whole... Okay, this is the baptistry in in Florence, and Florence really is what we consider to be the birthplace of the Renaissance. So the first time you walk up to the the Duomo, you're gonna see this structure in front of the Duomo, and it's the baptistry, and every Florentine until Uh, About 10 years ago, they stopped this practice. But every Florentine up to that point had been baptized in this baptistry since the medieval ages. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: I don't think it was secularization. I think it was just the population boom. You know, it was just, there were just so many. (laughs) Um, But as you can see, Even though it was originally a medieval structure, in the Renaissance, they reclad it in uh, the style of uh, the Renaissance with colored marbles. And these colored marbles coordinate with the the church, which I'll show you in just a moment. So I'm gonna go over here just real quick. This is another one of the medieval structures called the Palazzo Vicchio. And it's the palace of the, uh, the people that ruled the city-state of uh, Florence. And if you look up high enough, you can even see that some of the windows are covered with grates. Uh, and because they didn't want the populace, if they made a decision that wasn't uh, agreed on by the populace. They didn't want the populace getting in there and hurting them or killing them. Now, <laughs> how many of you have been to Italy? Okay. Okay, so those of you that haven't been to Italy, the Italians are very flamboyant and uh, in, in <laughs> people will take sides in anything. I We saw, when we lived there, we saw um, a, a wreck, and you had this side of the street rooting for the person that was in the car, and this side of the street rooting for the person that hit him. And they get, they, I mean, they're just like, this to cuffs, you know? One time, Randy was at the Rome um, train station, and you can travel on a pass if, uh, um, as a family, for just the mileage on a on a pass, because they want you to see as much of Italy as you can. So we were at the thing, and and Randy said, "Due adulti, uno bambino," and he said, "Well, how old is your child?" And Randy said, "Dodici, 12. and he goes, mm, "Adulti," and Randy was like, "No, it says right here, twelve and under," because we had traveled all over. The place with Chris as twelve and under, which means that you get half the mileage, <laughs> and adult day, and, he goes, Adulte. and <laughs> I mean just just that fast. This this part of the crowd started rooting for <laughs> um, the conductor guy, and this side started rooting for Randy, and finally, the the guy behind the Des said, um, Americano stupido. And, and Randy goes, Italiano gnocchi, <laughs> which means a dumpling. <laughs> and by the it means a dumpling that you eat, a potato dumpling. And so um, this side of the crowd goes, uh-huh. Americano stupido. <laughs> and they walked away from him. So they get very, very boisterous and take sides. And the same was true of the poor men that were trying to rule in, the, uh, in Rome, um, I'm sorry, in Italy. So <laughs> um, they had this contest. They wanted to do just the words of the Bible, basically, So the scripture. They wanted the doors of the, um, uh, to the baptistry. They wanted a new set of doors and they wanted it to be stories from the Bible. And so they held a competition, (laughs) which is always kind of dangerous, but that's the way they did things in those days. And so it was the signori, the um, judges, maybe, Um, that decided on who was going to do the doors. So these were the... It came down between... These two uh, artists, um, Lorenzo Ghiberti and Filippo Brunelleschi, and Brunelleschi would have been probably everyone's favorite because he was the one that solved the problem, this medieval problem, about how to put a dome on top of this great big hole in the, the, the Latin cross structure and Brunelleschi, once again, having been brought in by the Signori, um, he said, uh, you should pick the man that can take an egg and have it sit on, its, on upright. And so they said, well, okay. So they have all these competitors. No one can make the egg stand up on its own. So he comes in after everybody else and taps it on the branch so that it breaks and all of the yoke comes out, and it stands still. And they said, well, anybody can do that. And he said, but nobody did, and I know how to do it. And they gave him the commission. And to this day, they have done all kinds of feasibility studies from engineers, and no one knows how he did it because he did it without scaffolding. Yeah, it, it, it really is an engineering marvel. And the reason we don't know how he did it is because in order, uh, they didn't have copyrights in those days. So in order to, uh, to take notes of how to do something without your idea being stolen, you created your own language. So no one knew, no one knows the, the key. To understanding his language and so his ideas went with him to the grave. He even developed um, certain machines to carry out his work and no one knows how to reproduce those either because they were broken after the Duomo was finished. So it is an engineering marvel. So naturally you would think Brunelleschi would get the doors to the um, baptistry. Well, It actually the commission was given to Lorenzo Ghiberti and I'm going to show you these are the doors and these are such incredibly uh, bright these are gold they are very three-dimensional and the reason that Ghiberti is so fascinating is that this is sort of like the very first movie because different things are happening at, at different levels, and so you don't get a snapshot, you get a movie of what's happening in the Scripture. And um, whereas, um, whereas in Gothic architecture, the, the craftsmen were doing it solely for the glory of God, because there is now this emphasis on the individual, as well as the word, Ghiberti took liberties to put his portrait in it, so he basically signed his work. This is his own portrait. It's a self-portrait of himself. Now, let me show you a little bit about what makes this so unique. So this particular story, oh, that's not a very good, it pixelated, Badly, but I can still, um, I think, share with you. So at the top upper left, this is the story of Joseph, by the way. So at the top upper left, you see that he's being bound and sold by his brothers to the, um, the slave traders that bring him to... Uh, Egypt, and then in the forefront, you see the uh, the meeting of his brothers while he is the, the Pharaoh's right hand man, and uh, in the background here, you can see that they're bringing their grain back so that he can open it up and find the, the goblet. And then, over here, you see him revealing himself to his brothers, and their their very emotional response to finding out that he is Joseph. So every panel is like that. It's a it's it's very emotional to stand there and watch the story unfold, and uh, it was it's such a magnificent. Um, such a magnificent door that Michelangelo would walk past it and say, these are the gates of paradise. And so they've been nicknamed that ever since. So this is a perfect example of how that the scriptures were still being taught to people who hadn't yet learned to to read. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is the Duomo, the that Brunelleschi built, that no one's still, it's still a mystery. And when Michelangelo was given the commission to design the the new Vatican, um, the new St. Peter's, he was terrified to do it because he said, no dome is more beautiful than that of the Duomo. And he was just terrified to do it. But I think he did a good job on the Vatican. (laughs)
1: Do you have time for a quick story? Yeah, I do. When Sandy and I were in Florence uh, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. we were staying at a hotel and wanted to walk down to the the Vecchio to get something to mm-hmm. eat. Yes. an outside cafe. Right. And as we walked by the Womo, we saw young people carrying coral robes and they were going inside wow. the Womo. And we found the out rushing. that this was culmination of a year long uh, recruitment and, and celebration of high school age choirs from all over the world. Whoa. There were 600 <gasps> choruses. Oh, and so we missed supper that night. Yeah. But we sat in the Duomo and <sighs> wow. the acoustics were fantastic. They, they, uh, I hate to use the word fantastic.
0: But it's okay, it, it fits.
1: Uh, the chorus would stop suddenly, the director would do this. And then seconds later the music from the name and the app oh, wow. would,
0: Echo would, back would in. still be
1: there. Yeah. I'll never forget that.
0: Of course. Yeah. Oh, um, that the, the the duomo really is unique for its time because it is so plain. It's not highly decorative, but every surface is a hard surface. And so it would reverberate like that, wonderful. Here's the front, you see the, uh, you you can tell that this is a gothic structure because of the rose window and the lancet arches. Okay, so I'm going to skip through some of this okay here we go i want to, i want you to see the hospedali innocente. um the this was also built by brunelleschi and it was a hospital for the innocents um, basically it was a place where the 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 catholic church could offer medical uh, help to all those that were sick and of course um this was a departure because like during the black plague um, that took the lives of literally hundreds of thousands of people the um, instead of bringing them to the church to be cared for they were able to bring them to this hospital and you see, can s- see me
1: slide, will you Yeah, sure. I'll tell you why.
0: I- okay. Why um once again he employed roman arches he did the groin vaults but he um, also added pediments to it that kind of uh, repeated the uh, the corinthian columns and then this is one of the dearest features i think of them he had um, one of the artisans in in. Florence uh, made these fabulous white porcelain um, three-dimensional baby Jesuses and Marys and fruits and swags, and they're glazed with white and blues and yellows. And he had a series of these commissioned so that they would go on the in the cusp of each of these arches. And they're all different, but they're just so, so dear. And um, and he also adopted the use of the pediments above the windows. And so this was at the very, very beginning of the Renaissance. And this is um, the, clo- the, walk, the walk in between, so that you can see it. What is that building right now? Is it a museum? It's... Um, yeah, more or less. I think the when we were living there, I was on a bus. And I just decided one day that I was I just was having a hard time learning my way around the city. So I got on one bus and I rode it the whole way around <laughs> just so I would know, okay, where can I go if I take this bus? And it went it passed by that and my Heart, I thought my heart was going to jump out of my chest because I was so excited because it, it was being used. It was just, you know, by people. It wasn't relegated to the scrap heap like, I w- like it would have been in America because it was, after all, built in the 1400s. So it, it was pretty amazing. Uh, the house that we lived in was um, built in the 1300s, and it didn't smell moldy. Um, it was still vital. Uh, the The materials were the same that had been there since the 1300s. It was really pretty stunning to me that, you know, thinking that I was waking up seeing a ceiling that had been put there before Columbus even discovered the Americas. Ugh. It was just kind of stunning to me. I am sorry these are so pixelated. Um, okay so this is San Lorenzo that I showed you before and I want to show you another one that Brunelleschi built this time in 1434 Santo Spirito it has some of these same elements like you said lots of light uh, the flat ceiling the uh, Roman arches and the um, in this particular uh, in the in the what we would call the ass, where the apex of it, you've got an organ. Uh, but you can see that they've started putting pulpits in for the declaration of the word. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting is in the Romanesque and the Gothic period, you would not have seen people sitting down. The, well, and I'm pretty sure even in the Renaissance they would still be sitting up. The chair was always for the hierarchy so the person in charge so it wasn't until much much later in the centuries that they actually started adding pews for the the lay people to sit but as you can see in this setup they are set up for that um the other other thing i want to back up do you remember how in the Romanesque you had three tiers the, those tears are gone, and so you just, it's all one level. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the person in charge, more or less, lived in this palace. This is the Palazzo Medici, so the Medici family lived here. These structures are absolutely enormous, and you can see that you've got the little people down here, little little team, and you really can't even reach the sill of of the bottom window. And this course right here was called the Piano Nobile, which meant that business could be transacted right off the street here with the family. This is the floor that the family would live on, and then you had uh, the third level, which would be quarters for the family and the servants, and, and then um, this overhang. This was very rusticated cut stone. This was large cut stone, but planed off. And then the top level was planed so that it was completely smooth. And that's kind of typical of Renaissance. And I want to show you one more thing before our time is already up. Okay, where's my cursor? Okay, this I want to I want to close with this. Um, this is the Palazzo Vecchio that we talked about that was built in the Middle Ages, and this is where David, Michelangelo's David, stood. Um, until a riot (laughs) happened, and he was so nervous that oral legend says that the stone is like right about in here, that he was standing there making sure that no one hurt his uh, magnificent um, statue, that he had a chisel, and, and that he was so nervous that he... Actually, was tapping into the stone, and that that, uh, that this is what he did behind his back while he was yeah. <laughs> so that's just a little a little funny to close out with. Mm-hmm. But um, I I really appreciate your patience with me. I didn't find I thought Emily was teaching this class, and I didn't find out until this morning that I was. So. So, I'm not as prepared as I usually am. But really, I appreciate you being with me today and being able to think about this really pivotal time because this is going to lead to the Enlightenment. And it, once we get to the Enlightenment, I mean, it, you, can, you can see that we are children of the Enlightenment, the Church of Christ is. But then we're going to get into, okay, what happens? Because we are now at that 500. Your mark, and that's why so much is happening. It's interesting to think what is the church going to abandon in this rummage sale, and what will be our core of authority as we move forward. So, this is a little bit of foundation. Let
1: me let me say one brief thing. I heard a, a perspective on uh, history from. Princeton professors. So are fun! There are four major developments in communication: the spoken word, mm-hmm. the written mm-hmm. word,
0: the, printed, the word, printed word, and the internet. Mm. What was the last one? The internet. The internet. Uh-huh. See, when uh-huh. the Gutenberg was part of this this third. period of time, and and now this right we're we're at that hinge where information is so abundant that it calls into question well how do you know what's fake and what's not
1: Mm
0: -hmm. okay so this is this is our challenge right where we sit and this set the table for it so thank you so much Sola Scriptura. (laughs) Thank you.